0: If you would turn with me to chapter, Titus chapter 3, the book of Titus chapter 3, and we'll read verses 4 and 5. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. had a conversation at the beginning of last week. Maybe you've had a conversation somewhat similar. It was innocent. I wasn't expecting to have it when I had it. I really didn't see it coming until I found myself in the situation. It was a Monday morning last week, and it was, it was a beautiful morning, a beautiful fall morning in the Ozarks. I was in Branson, and I had stayed the night with my, my parents, and I was the first one up that morning. The sun wasn't quite up there, and I decided I'd take Wyndham. Our black lab. He was with us, and I decided I'd take Wyndham for a walk. And so Wyndham and I walked, and uh, he loves to walk. You say walk to Wyndham, and he is ready. He is at the door, uh, panting and excited. And so uh, he was panting and excited. And where my parents live, there's a—they call it a lake, but it's kind of a nice river, and uh, it's got a really nice walking path. It takes you right down along the water. And you can walk down a long ways. And so Wyndham and I, we had gone for a walk a beautiful morning, had a jacket on, and we were walking along the water, and it was just a good time to to just be by myself, just me and Wyndham. So we made it down quite a ways, and then uh, decided it was time to turn around, and so we turned it around, and we went back, and as we were getting uh, back closer to Mom and Dad's house, I noticed that there were two gentlemen, and they were both wearing a tie, which caught my attention Uh, Monday morning uh, out early in the morning and they were wearing a tie and they had set up what looked like a mobile track rack and uh, I said hello and they said hello and they were just kind of visiting with each other and they were drinking their coffee and and so Wyndham and I just kept walking and the more I thought about it the more I thought you know what I need to go see about that so I turned around and I went back and I engaged these gentlemen in conversation by asking a question that is found in the New Testament no less than three times. Clearly, these were religious men. Clearly, they had set up these racks and they had religious information. I didn't know who they were with. I didn't know who they were. I knew nothing at that point. I had an assumption or a, maybe a, you know, I was thinking maybe, but I didn't know. So I walked up and they, I simply asked them the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I'll just start the conversation that way. Sirs? What must I do to be saved? And these two gentlemen began to kind of hem and haw, and they were kind of stammering a bit, and they were skirting around the question that was posed, and they didn't know exactly what they wanted to say and exactly how they wanted to answer it. And long story short, these gentlemen believed that there are only 144,000 who are actually going to make it to heaven. These people believed, these gentlemen believed, and we had a cordial conversation Uh, They didn't change my opinion, and I don't think I changed theirs. But we exchanged some Bible passages back and forth. They believed that the earth is going to be refurbished and that uh, they were going to be able to live a life in a state of paradise similar to what we were experiencing right there on that riverbank that day. They asked me, why do you want to go to heaven anyway? What are you going to do in heaven uh, anyway? Why do you want to spend all your time in heaven? And I said, why don't you want to go to heaven? So we had a conversation, but I started thinking about that. These gentlemen uh, told me that they didn't believe there was a place called hell. I think it's a great thought, you know, something that uh, sounds nice, I guess, if you suppose and want to think about it, but, but uh, they believe that there's ultimately a state where, where people are, who are not right with God, they're just eventually going to vanish away. It's just kind of an annihilation, and they're just going to cease to exist. And so uh, all of this, you know, kind of gets the mind uh, stirring. And tonight what I want to do is just focus on these three words. You know, Mike focused on four words this morning. Tonight I want to take a minute, I want to think about three words. And Wayland just read them for us in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. And you see them on the screen behind me. He saved us. Tonight I want you to think about that. And I want you to think about the implication. Just three implications I want to draw tonight... On that statement, those words of Paul, and I don't tonight just want to draw three words out at random and say, look at these and let's just examine these. But in this context, I want you to think about what Paul says when he says to Titus, he saved us. What does that imply? Number one, that implies that there is something from which to be saved. Now brother jim please don 't critique my English because i don 't think that 's probably correct that I have it the way I have it up there but i 'm a simple minded person, and I want you to simply understand what i 'm trying to say that that implies he saved us that implies that there was something from which we needed to be saved if i didn 't need to be saved, then there is no reason for God to save me. You understand what i 'm saying if there is no reason for you to be saved then then why did God save you? Why did Paul say to Titus, He saved us? Titus was told that by Paul because Titus needed to be saved. And Paul was saying that because he he knew he needed to be saved. And tonight, I'm reminding you that you need to be saved. And so do I. That's what that statement implies. He saved us. That implies that we needed to be saved. So let's think about that for a minute. It implies some things. Boy, Brother David, I'm going to hope I don't have to call on you, but be prepared. These gentlemen posed this question to me. I'll pose it to you. Will a loving God really send people to hell? I mean, if God is really all-loving, is God really going to send people to hell? And they said, that doesn't make any sense, you know, that God would, would send people to hell. That seems like such a cruel thing for God to do. And if God really is all love, then, then why is there a place called hell? And why would he send people there? So you take a step back for a minute. And you think about that. All right, now that question is posed to you. What do you re- how do you respond? What do you have to say to this question? Will a loving God really send people to hell? Now be, be careful when you think about answering this question. It's a great question, isn't it? It's a great question. I was so glad that they asked. I think it's an honest and good question for us to ask. But you ever, you ever talked to anybody who died? I mean, have you ever had a conversation with anybody who's died? I haven't. I suppose you haven't either. I've never had a conversation with somebody who died, and now they're looking at me face to face, and we're having a conversation. And so I don't have any firsthand information from anybody who's died and gone to heaven or gone to hell. So I'm left with what the Bible says. I'm left with what the Bible says. And so this is the concrete revelation of God, and I need to see what God has to say on the subject. And this is what I know. Boy, Brother David, I don't know. I'll give you two. Man has the ability to choose. When you come to this subject matter, I think there's some very fundamental and important things to remember. Number one is that man has the ability to choose. Now, I know that you know that, and I know that you've been told that before, but when you're having this conversation, you need to be reminded that God has given you the ability to make up your own mind. He is not just automatically going to send you to heaven and He's not just automatically going to send anyone to hell. He's going to let you choose where you spend eternity. And so it is with me. That's why Joshua in Joshua 24 and verse 15 would say, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the the gods that our fathers served on the other side of the river, the God of the Ammonites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will We'll serve the Lord, Joshua says. Joshua Joshua reminds him, look, you have a choice. God didn't pre-program you. You have the ability to choose. You go back in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 23, and and here's a very simple way of looking at it. And and again, Jesus brings this out in this conversation of Matthew chapter 23. And and you know as well as I that in this context, uh, He is uh, just hours, few days before He goes and dies on the cross. He's got some very important things that He is teaching. He knows that the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen in that generation about 40 years from when He speaks these words. And He is crying out in verse number thirty-seven: 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you catch it were not willing. You were not willing. Jerusalem, I came to save you. Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you. I wanted to protect you. I wanted you to be with me. I wanted to keep you safe and secure, but you were not willing. God says, I was willing, but you were not. You see, that implies that that there is a choice ...to be made when it comes to our salvation. There's a choice to be made as to where we're going to spend eternity. I want to remember that when I'm answering the question... ...will a loving God really send people to hell? Number two, I want to remember in this conversation... ...that sin really does separate us from a holy God. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 2 and 3... ...remember Isaiah uh, looks and he sees the Lord... ...high and lifted up, sitting on His throne and he sees the the train of the robe of God filling up the entire room where God is sitting. And he hears seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. We serve a holy God. We were made in the image of a holy God. In 1 John 1, in verse number 6, John says that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. He is perfect in every single way. I remember James chapter 1 and verse number 21. Remember, uh, every good and perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That tells us that God is perfect in every single way. God cannot sin. God cannot go against what is right. He cannot go against Himself. He is holy in every way. And so His holiness demands that he cannot ignore sin. What is sin? Sin is lawlessness. Sin is going against God and His will. And so sin has a way of separating man from God. That's what the Bible makes clear in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2. Your sin has separated you from God. He is a holy God and sin separates us from Him. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans and look at chapter 2. I realize on the screen that I'm really wanting to emphasize verses 5 and 6. But back up and catch verse 4. And see the contrast that Paul makes when he's speaking to Christians concerning God and His character. God and who He really truly is. In Romans chapter 2 and verse number 4... He says to these Christians, Or do you despise the riches of His, God's goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? And so here you have this one side of God, the riches of God's goodness and His patience and His forbearance. But then there's his other side. Verse number 5, But in accordance with, catch it, your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. You see it? Look, this is who God is. Don't forget this. God is rich in goodness. He is rich in patience. He is rich in forbearance. But you, by your hardness of heart, by your unwillingness to repent... You are storing up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath. It's a choice. It's a choice that we make to rebel against God. A choice that we make to go against Him. And God in His very nature must do something about it. Remember what Paul said over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 1. Again, he makes it clear that you He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So who is responsible if I die in my sin, if I die in my trespasses and sin? It's not a holy and sinless God. It's not His fault. It's me. It's my choice. I'm responsible for separating myself from God. And so you go back to Titus chapter 3 into our context tonight and you look at again what Paul emphasizes in Titus chapter 3 and verse number 3. He says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Paul says, who's responsible for that? That's a picture of me when I was lost, Paul says. That's a picture of us as Christians when we were lost, Titus. And who's responsible? We ourselves. That's what he says. Sin separates us from a holy God. It is my choice if I am separated from God by my choice to sin. And hell, brethren and friends is the ultimate separation. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. That's not fun to think about or talk about, really. But that's exactly what the Bible says. I go back to Matthew chapter 25, and and I'm just looking for simple statements, simple ways of putting it, and how can you get any easier than the way Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 25? You remember there in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse number 1, going down through verse 13, Jesus gives the parable of the ten virgins. And you remember that five were wise and five were foolish. And the difference between the wise and the foolish was that five had extra oil. They were prepared in case there was some kind of delay. And there was a delay. And the foolish went to the wise and said, hey, we need to borrow some. And the, and the wise said, no. No, uh, I don't know how long this is going to take. You need to go and get yourself some oil. Well, as you know, the bridegroom came as they were gone. And the verse number 10 says, And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, underline it, ready, went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Jesus says in verse 13, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Well, how long is this separation going to be? The door was shut and they were not allowed to come in. How long is that going to last? Verse 41 of Matthew 25 says, He will say to those on the left hand, Depart from Me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Is it really forever? Well, verse 46, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment will last as long as eternal life. That's what Jesus says. Hell is the ultimate separation. All right, so yes, the Bible says a loving God is going to do that. Justice demands it, my friend. Justice demands it it demands that sin be addressed it is not my place to put words into the mouth of god so i can understand if you're looking at this from a viewpoint that says uh, emotionally uh, emotionally i'm not sure i get it emotionally i'm not sure that i agree with it emotional on an emotional level and these gentlemen said adam would you take one of you you have any kids and i said yeah i have got a couple of boys and they said would you take one of those boys and put his hand on a burner and just keep it there forever I said, of course I wouldn't do that. Then why would God do that? See, emotionally, you you see. How about you just examine the Bible for what it says and trust that God will always do what is right. That's what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? Yes. You know what? Every single time. He will do right every single time. It would be one thing if I said to one of those men, I will be your judge. All right? I will determine where you spend eternity or you can stand before me. God will always do what is right and His justice demands That sin be punished. He cannot, as a holy God, stand for sin and be in the presence of it and allow it to be where He is for eternity. Justice demands that this isn't right. But let me ask you a couple of questions for your consideration very quickly. Number one, is it fair for God to reward? Let me ask you again and I want you to think about it. These people are coming from a perspective that says it's not fair for God to punish. It's not fair for God to, uh, to, to have a place called hell. It's not fair for God to send people there for eternity. Can I ask you this? Is it fair for God to reward for eternity? Well, I don't want to talk about that. Of course it's fair. It, what's the difference? What's the difference? If it's fair for God to reward people who have sinned, then isn't it fair for God to punish people who have sinned? If not, why not? You can't have one without the other. You see? God is always going to do what is right. But Let me ask you this question. I think it's very important for us to ask. Does God delight in hell? Does God delight in sending people to hell? Is God just sitting up there waiting for people to sin so He can send them to hell? Oh boy, I got myself another one today. He messed up so bad, He is definitely going to make it to hell. That's not even funny to joke about, is it? I mean, what I just did there, that's not even funny. And you know that's not funny. And I'm not trying to be funny. Because you know that it's not right. You know that He doesn't want to send anyone to hell. He doesn't delight in that. You know your Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 that His desire is for all to come to repentance. That He doesn't want any to be lost. You know that hell was originally designed for the devil and for his angels. And God has made every single possible provision so that no one has to go there. He's done everything He can do to keep us out of there. But His justice demands that sin be addressed. Hell does exist. He saved us. There is a place from which to be saved. There is a place from which to be saved. And I won't be saved from hell because I am good I will be saved from hell because He is good. And that's what I want to remember. There is something from which to be saved. He saved us. But number two, there's the flip side, right? If He saved us, that means that means that there is somewhere to be saved too. That means the opposite also has to be true. There is somebody, somewhere from which to be saved... And there is somewhere that we get to go. There is somewhere to be saved too. And so you have the reality of heaven. The reality of going to be with God. Heaven is a reality. I brought this verse out this morning, this whole passage out this morning in the adult Bible class here in the auditorium. The words of Jesus in John chapter 14 verses 1 through 6. I hope you don't mind to hear them again. I could hear these words all the time. Just put them on repeat. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to go to be with the Father? Jesus says, you can. I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and receive you to myself so that we can all go together. I'm coming again so I can receive you, and I want you to know that this place called heaven, it is a reality And I'm not going to go through all of those verses on the screen, but you understand that as you begin, and this of course is not an exhaustive list of all the reality that is heaven, that place that the saved are going to be for eternity. It is a place of rest, a place of glory. It is a place of holiness. It is a place of separation, the Bible says, from the righteous and the unrighteous. The sheep and the goats, those on his right versus those on his left. This great separation is going to occur. And it's a place of separation. It's a place of holiness. It's where God is. And those men said, Adam, you really want to go to heaven? What are you going to do for the rest of time in heaven? And I said, we're going to worship God forever. And they said, won't you get tired? You know, I remember as a young person thinking that. I don't know, does that that sound like fun? I mean, I'm being honest with you. I don't know if you ever had that thought cross your mind as a young person. I don't know, does that sound like fun? I mean, it seems like something I get tired of doing. You're just worshiping all the time and there's no night there, so you never sleep. You just keep doing it and you do it that day and you get up and you do it the next day and you just keep doing that and you're going to do that all the time? Those men said, I... I want to be on this riverbank. I'd rather be fishing. When do we get to heaven, I don't think we'll be thinking about fishing. <laughs> I just don't think that's going to ever cross our minds again. I think when we get to heaven, there'll just be no way we ever will grow tired of being in the presence of God. I think about that more as I get a little older, and I think about, you know, hopefully more uh, grown-up things than when I was young. and I still think about two things that are immature. I'm not saying that, but I want to go to heaven. I just want to worship God forever. I don't think I'll ever get tired of it. I just want to go to heaven. I, I don't want to miss it. A place of fellowship. It's, it's a place of reward. It's a place of extreme beauty, beauty that it is really unable to be perfectly described It's a place where nothing bad ever will exist again. We have no evil, nothing bad, no pain, no death, nothing uh, in this place. And the reality of heaven is real. It's real because God has revealed it to us. And look, I have promised you that you can go to heaven. He saved us. He saved us. And that implies that there is somewhere for the saved to go. You are saved from something to something. What an amazing thought. He saved us. But here's number three. Maybe. Hmm. We hit the button, Brother David. Can you hit the button? Just the air. Oh, okay. There is a way to be saved. That's what I've come to say tonight. He saved us. There is something from which to be saved. There is something to which to be saved. And therefore, there has to be a way to be saved. There has to be a way to be saved. That's Titus chapter 3, looking at verse number 4, the great contrast that Paul brings out in this great passage in Titus chapter 3. This is who we were, verse number 3, I read that a moment ago. We ourselves were also once. We were that in the past. But this great transition word takes place there. You see it in verse number 4. But. So I'm going from lost to saved. But. But something great has happened to me. I have been saved. By the grace of God, now I have been saved. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared... And verse number seven, you have the grace of God. Verse number six, you've got Jesus Christ, our Savior, by the grace of God. Well, Paul, hasn't the grace of God been made made available to all men? Yes, Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Yes, all men have the opportunity to be saved. But no, not all are going to be saved. God's grace makes it possible for us to be saved. What else does that context say? What else does it say about what we need to do in order to be saved? Brother David? Who's going to go to heaven? Let's just let the Bible speak for itself, shall we? Listen, you don't have to take my word for this. I'm saying that He saved us and this is who He's going to save. And this is what the Bible brings out. Those who are ready for every good work. Doesn't your Bible say something like that in chapter 3 and verse 1? Those who are ready for every good work. In verse number 5. Those who have been washed, uh, the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Sounds like John chapter 3 to me. Uh, Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Born of what? Born of water and the Spirit. Born again. The washing of regeneration. The renewing of the Holy Spirit. You have to be careful to maintain good works well, Adam, I didn't think you were going to work your way to heaven. Don't misunderstand me. You won't. That is to say that you're not going to get in front of God. You're not going to stand in front of God and you're going to say, God, you have to let me in. <laughs> no. No, he doesn't. Based on what you have done, no, he doesn't. No, you're not going to work your way there. You're not going to earn it. You're not going to contribute enough. You don't have a bank account big enough to compare with God's. I promise you. You're not going to give enough. You're not going to attend enough. Uh, you're not going to teach enough. You're not going to do enough to earn your way, to stand before God and say, you must let me in. But you must work works of righteousness, my friend. You must be faithful to God. You must walk in the light. You must be producing the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I am incapable of saving myself, and so are you. We need the grace of God. We need Jesus, our Savior, verse number 6. Let me close with Colossians chapter 2. I'd like you to go there now. You see, Paul mentions in Titus chapter 3, the washing of regeneration. I think that's a clear reference. Seems to me a clear reference to baptism, right? A clear reference to baptism. And you are not going to be saved unless your sins are forgiven. So I go up and I ask, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What are we asking? I'm asking, how do I have my sins forgiven? That's the question. How do I have my sins forgiven? Because a holy God who is just in every way, a God who is holy, who cannot have anything to do with sin, I know that I have to be forgiven of my sin if I'm going to make it to His presence. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11. In Him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands... by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ... buried with Him in baptism... in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God... who raised Him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all, his, all your trespasses. Who does all the work in these verses? Can I ask you? Who does all the work in, the, in that passage of Colossians 2, verses 11 through 13? And you stop and you examine that passage, and this is the working of God in verse number 12. This is what God does. It is God who, in verse number 11, puts off the bodies of the sins of the flesh. It is God who raises you to walk in newness of life, verse number 12. It is God who makes you alive together with Him. It is God who forgives you all your trespasses. What do you do? You submit to God in baptism and He forgives your sins. He saved us. That's what we find. There's a way to be saved. (laughs) I don't know if you've stopped to contemplate that. Hell, it does exist. And real people are really going to go there. You just remove emotion out of it. You take the Bible for what it says. And God, who cannot lie, teaches us that fact. I want to love Him. I want to love Him more because He has made a way to save me. He saved us from hell that we might go to be with Him in heaven. Spread the news, my friend. Spread the news. He saved us. We've got a gospel meeting coming up and there are flyers just sitting there waiting to be handed out to someone who just needs that good news. He saved us. He can save you too. (laughs) What a message. Tonight, my friend, if you're not saved, if you're not right with God, then tonight is the night for you to respond to His invitation. It's not mine, but He extends it and He says, Won't you come? Won't you come and accept the salvation that is offered through my Son? See, God has done everything He can do for you. He has given His Son. He has demonstrated His love for you in giving us His Son, even while we were yet sinners. Won't you come to Him tonight, believing Jesus Christ to be the Son of God, willing to confess that, to repent of sin in your life and to be baptized, having your sins washed away, having your sins forgiven. Tonight, you can be saved. Let's be about, brethren, let's be about spreading that message, shall we? Let's be about telling people that they can be saved too. Let's make sure that that an invitation is extended for them to be here and and to hear the good news that they can be saved. Tonight, as you as a Christian, you think about your life and maybe you've forgotten that you were saved and what it took for you to be saved. Maybe tonight you've wandered back into sin and you need to respond to the the invitation. It's open. Will you come? As together we stand to sing.